and sisters, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Our text is particularly verses 20 and 21. Eventually, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Don't worry, there's a long run-up to it, okay? But uh, hopefully, uh, it, will, it will be timed well. Um, let, me, let me say, before we dive in here, that I started full-time service with World Witness back this past summer. I started fundraising back last January. Last December, I was the pastor, the senior pastor at the Huntersville ARP Church. We had just finished up a sermon series, and we, as the pastoral staff, we were getting together, we were praying about, we were considering, what should we preach next? So we landed on this plan. Let's preach through Paul's epistles to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, and to the Colossians. And as I said in the first service, if you need help in remembering the order of those books, General Electric Power Corporation. Okay, so we decided let's preach through those. Well, I preached the first two messages for, uh, for Galatians, and then I was gone out on the fundraising trail. But as I prepared for those lessons and as I prepared to preach a message from any epistle or teach a Sunday school lesson upon any epistle, one of the questions that I asked myself as I prepare, as I study, is this. Is there a clear primary emotion that's being exhibited from the human author under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this particular letter? Because we know the Holy Spirit is inspiring a human author to write into a particular context, whether it's to a person or to a church or a group of churches, for particular reasons. And usually those reasons for writing elicit uh, an emotion out of the writer. And if you ask yourself that question, is there a primary emotion, say for instance in the book of Galatians that Paul's exhibiting, the answer is yes. The Apostle Paul is what? mad. He's angry. He's hot. He has righteous indignation. Why? Because after the Lord had used him to give birth to the churches in Galatia and he moved to another field of ministry, there were those who came in behind him and they said to the Galatian Christians, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a nice message about believing in Jesus. But if you want to be a really good Christian, a real Christian, you've got to believe in Jesus, yes, but you've also got to become, first of all, a good Jew. So that means you need to adopt the kosher diet. That means you need to adopt the Jewish calendar. And guys, sorry to tell you this, it means you have to be circumcised. You, you, to be a really good Christian, yes, believe in Jesus, plus doing these things. And when Paul got wind of that, he's hot. Because any quote-unquote gospel that's believe in Jesus, plus your acts, your deeds, your righteousness, is no gospel at all, is it? It's a message that, don't, that won't lead you to heaven. It will be a message that leads you to eternal damnation. And Paul knows that, and he's upset, and he's angry, and he's exhibiting that righteous anger in the epistle to the Galatians. Flip over past Ephesians, 
and go to the epistle to the Philippians. Ask yourself the same question. Is there emotion that Paul's exhibiting there, a primary one? And I think the answer there is clear as well. If you're familiar with Philippians, in virtually every paragraph, if not every sentence, we find a particular word or a group of words. What's that word? Joy. Rejoice. Variance on the word rejoice or joy throughout the entire book. He is telling the Philippian Christians, you can rejoice, brothers and sisters, which is ironic because where was he writing that epistle from? Prison. From imprisonment. And he's basically therefore telling the Philippian Christians that despite the circumstances, and your circumstances, Philippians, could get very dire. You could face persecution. But despite the circumstances, you can rejoice. Why? Because you're resurrection people. Well, what does he mean by that? Or what do we mean by that? He means that when you think about the resurrection, the resurrection tells you something critical. It tells you that God can take the darkest moment of human history, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from that darkness or out of that darkness, he can bring salvation for all of his people. And we know he can do it because what happened to Jesus on the third day? He was resurrected. We are resurrect, resurrection people. And therefore, it doesn't matter what's going on in our lives. God can use it for his glory, and he will, and for our good. So rejoice. So in Galatians, it's anger. Hot. Righteous indignation. In Philippians, it's joy, rejoice. Now, how about Ephesians? If I ask you that same question, what's the primary emotion that we might see here? The affection that, that the Apostle Paul is exhibiting. Some might say rejoicing, and, and, and that works. But when I read through this epistle, the thing that pops out to me is it just seems as if the Apostle is pumped. He's excited. He's enthralled with this God. He's exuberant about salvation in Jesus Christ and the glories of that salvation. He's super excited. And that excitement is just spilling over, through, particularly throughout the first three chapters. Go to chapter 1. Many of you probably know, know this, but once you get past that greeting, you, uh, when you get down to, say, verse 3 and then go all the way down to verse 14... In our English translations, we have punctuation. In the original Greek, there's no punctuation. There's not a single comma. There's no period. Now, when you're writing a letter to someone or an email to someone, and you hopefully do use punctuation, why do you use it? You use punctuation in great part to tell your reader, when they can take a breath. A comma means they can take a what? A, a half stop. A period or an exclamation mark, they can do a what? Full stop. They can breathe. All right, if that's the case and there's no punctuation in verses 3 through 14, what is that telling you about the Apostle Paul? He's not coming up for air. It's just one long run-on sentence. He is super excited and he just keeps on pouring out his excitement about the depths and the glories of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Isn't it beautiful? 
And he continues that excitement into a prayer. We have that prayer of thanksgiving and an excited prayer in the second half of chapter 1. Then when we get to chapter 2, we begin to see what's really got Paul going. What's got him excited. Think about this. When, When the apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, as he has come now by sovereign grace to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he is probably most likely thinking, okay, what's God doing now in the world? Well, he's, he's turning the hearts of ethnic Jews to Jesus as their Messiah. Wonderful! That's what I want, that's what I long for. And that's what he was expecting. But then God begins to do something in addition to that. And what does he begin to do? And he begins to do it through Peter. He begins to do it through other apostles. And he's going to do it in a wonderful way through the apostle Paul. He begins bringing not only ethnic Jews to belief in Jesus Christ, but he begins to bring what? Gentiles into belief in Jesus Christ. So now Jews and Gentiles are coming together to be a part of the very same church to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's got Paul super excited. That brings us to chapter 3. As we're reading chapter 3, remember he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentile members of the church. He's writing to Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You can can hear his mind being blown. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we, who's the we include? Believing Jew and believing Gentile. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you 
to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the same in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and now he ends with the great crescendo he ends with this doxology hear these words now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen glorious words let's let's unpack them a bit particularly verse 20 and let me do so by giving you two stories and as I said earlier the first story it doesn't matter you can forget it the second story I hope you never forget the first story and the reason why you can forget it is because it's about me. It's autobiographical. Now, I've been in ARP, and I know many of you, and I've had the privilege of being uh, in court with you, not in um, law court, but in, in church courts with many of you at Presbytery meetings and Synod meetings and the like. I've been in ARP since 87, but I didn't grow up ARP. I'm not an ARP blue blood. I, I, I came in. I, if I must confess... I was a Baptist. My, my, my grandfather was a Baptist minister. I grew up in the Baptist church. And um, when I was growing up in the Baptist church and living with mom and dad, and I had no conception that one day I'd be standing here in, in Rock Hill at First ARP as an ARP pastor and missionary. I was going to be a good Baptist, and I was going to be a good Baptist engineer, because that's what my dad wanted. So I go off to Georgia Tech, uh, and I began to work on, I started out as electrical engineering, that was over my head, I went to civil engineering. Uh, I, I began to work on a civil engineering degree, and I was a co-op student, so that meant I worked a quarter and I went to school a quarter, worked a quarter, went to school a quarter, and I worked with Georgia Power. And I worked at a very large power plant, coal-fired plant, in the western part of Georgia known as Plant Wonsley. And I remember my first day there. I drove there, and it's a huge complex. And I drive up, and I uh, get to the parking lot for employees, which was between two massive cooling towers. And you parked your car there, and you had to go through a security gate. And, and as I parked my car my truck, I got out, and I'm walking to that security gate. And I remember I was praying at the time. Lord, may I be a good employee. May I do well at Georgia Power. May, may I do well at Georgia Power. May I be a good engineering student. May I graduate. May I get a good job. May I well, get a job that can provide for the family. And I can be just a good Baptist going to church and, and, and giving my offerings and paying my tithes and, and just being a good Baptist. That's in essence what my prayer was. And I walked through that security gate and lo and behold, within uh, two or three quarters, I soon find myself working alongside of an ARP ruling elder who was also an engineer. And this ruling uh, elder began to take me under his wing and he began to disciple me and he was asking me questions like these. Lee, have you ever read Ephesians chapter 1? 
have you ever read Romans chapter 9? And I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, yeah, but evidently I didn't get out of those chapters what I should have gotten out of them. I better go read them again. So he got me to thinking and reading. And then he began to give me R.C. Sproul tapes and Banner of Truth booklets. And you know what? Before long, this old Baptist boy was now what? Reformed. And I had recently gotten married. My wife and I had built a house. And we just so happened to be two miles down the road from an ARP church. The very ARP church that this elder served on session at. And so before long, not only am I reformed in my thinking, I'm an ARP. But I'm still an engineer. But before long, I sense God's call to ministry. And before long, I'm a student under care of Second Presbytery, and I'm going to seminary. And before long, up to about 1997, I'm ordained as a minister of the Word in the ARP Church. And before long, 25 years of pastoral ministry has passed. And before long, I'm standing at First ARP Church Rock Hill talking to you about the glories of God's Word and God's wonderful work throughout the world. Go back to verse 20. What does verse 20 say? Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I had no conception, but God did. That's the first story you can forget. Here's the one that you should never forget. It's, it's a story about a young man. He's a little younger than I am. He's Rwandan. Uh, let me start the story when he was 12 years old. Benjamin was 12 years old. Benjamin goes to visit his grandparents. He loved his grandparents, and he went to visit them. The year's 1994. Some of you understand what the significance of that year would be. When he got to his grandparents' home, they soon hear a bunch of noise outside. And they understand what that noise was all about. The genociders were on their way. The, the plane that had the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi on it had been shot down. And as soon as it was shot down, code words went out by radio waves to young French-trained Hutus. And those young French-trained Hutus were unleashed upon their fellow countrymen, moderate Hutus and Tutsis, and they began the genocide. Benjamin's grandparents hear the noise. They know what it meant. They got Benjamin up into the rafters of their hut home. They said, do not make a sound. And soon the genociders come into the hut home, and they do their evil, wicked work. right underneath Benjamin. They leave. A few hours later, Benjamin slides down, goes past his beloved deceased grandparents. And he's on the run for the remainder of those 100 days of terror. 100 days of terror in this beautiful country known as the land of a thousand hills and is absolutely gorgeous. And on those hills, one-tenth of the population of the country within 100 days has been slaughtered, strewn across that beautiful country. And twice, and again, I'm going to be careful as I was in the first service, 
Twice, Benjamin survived by playing possum. And at the end of those 100 days, he's in the capital city. And missionaries find him. And they take him in. And they provide care for him. And that care leads to and and, and really kind of ends in his college education. And at the end of his college education, he senses that God is calling him to some sort of ministry. So he begins to think about where could he go. And he thinks of as many American seminaries as he could find information on. And he fires off letters asking if they would receive him to be a student. And none of them respond except one. What one seminary, American seminary, that Benjamin wrote to responded to him? Erskine Theological Seminary. And they said, I think it was Steen Rubel at the time, Benjamin, come on. We'll bring you to Due West, South Carolina. (laughs) And again, as I said earlier, can you imagine the culture shock? He goes to Due West and they love on him. The church, the seminary, the ARP community, and Benjamin gets two degrees. And then guess what he does? He goes back to Rwanda. And that's so unusual. And he goes back to Rwanda because he's got a heart for children. And he gets a home in Kigali. And you know what he does? He just opens up his home to the street urchins. And he begins just taking in little street children and caring for them. And that's the beginning of Reach the Children of Rwanda International, which today cares for 1,000 children in Rwanda. And they got a school that educates 400 children, teaching them from a Christian view, giving them a glorious education, nice school uniforms, feeding them a meal a day, taking care of them. And and Benjamin had no idea that's where he would end up. Now Benjamin's got a heart for kids, as good teachers do. And when the kids come to school, they bring the problems from home. And so then he thinks, well, I'm going to have my teachers and I'm going to do it too. We're going to go and make home visitations. And they go into the homes of the students and they find out the needs of the homes. And they say, well, who can help us with the needs of these families if there is a family? And they say, okay, how about the churches? They begin to visit the churches. And Benjamin realizes something that he knew theoretically, but now he really realizes, this, realizes it. The churches have great needs as well. And one of the greatest need in all those churches is for those churches to have godly, well-trained, biblically trained ministers of the word. In Benjamin's mind, it's holistic. It goes from child to pastor. And he turns back to his network of ARP contacts and he says, will you help me with these children? $30 a month, you can sponsor a child. And then he turns to world witness and he says, will you help me teach and train the pastors? And that was the beginning, the genesis of the Barnabas ministry. The Barnabas ministry that I have the privilege of leading and overseeing. Now think about that. Two Gentiles, Lee and Benjamin, by God's design, brought together now for these kingdom purposes of training pastors in Africa. Neither one of us had that in mind when I walked through the security gate at Plant Wansley and when Benjamin was trekking to his grandparents' house. 
Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. How do you apply it in your life? Two ways, and I'll be quick. How do you apply that verse? First of all, have growing, bigger thoughts of God. Have big thoughts of God. Paul had big thoughts of God. His ideas about God are growing and he's rejoicing. He's reveling in his triune God who is sovereign, who's all-powerful, who's all-knowing, who's ever-present, who's transcendent, who's imminent, and who loves sinners such as ourselves. And he is excited with God and his thoughts about God are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Are yours. Are your thoughts getting bigger and bigger and bigger about God? Or are they stagnant? To he who has ears, let him hear. Second application. Not only have big thoughts about God, but make big ask of God. Now I know you're like me in many ways. And here's one way my, I'm, uh, I suspect that you're like me. Your prayers are anemic. They are too timid. Mine are. So let me just talk about me. Mine are. Yes, let's pray for the, the small details of life. Yes, let's pray for when we've got a problem at work with a coworker. Lord, help me figure this thing out. Or help me figure out how we're going to pay this bill. Or help me how, figure out, Lord, how we're going to pay for that college education. Or, or help us out, Lord, with, with, with the colds that we're dealing with. Or, or Aunt May's got this going on. All those things are legitimate things to pray about. Pray about them. God can handle them, right? But pray big prayers in addition to those. Let me give you the examples I gave earlier. First of all, why don't you pray this prayer? Maybe you are. If you are, praise be to the Lord. Lord, stop the war in Ukraine. Because Ukraine doesn't belong to Vladimir Putin and Russia doesn't belong to Vladimir Putin. They belong ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there has been this massive earthquake and thousands have died in Turkey and Syria. Now, through the efforts of believers, shine the light of the gospel and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in both of those countries to where many men and women, boys and girls who are enslaved to Islam will now be freed and believe in Jesus Christ. And pray a prayer like this. Lord, may the Hutus and Tutsis never slay each other again. Because Rwanda doesn't belong to Hutus, it doesn't belong to Tutsis, it belongs to Jesus Christ. Are you praying big prayers? Now, here's the point of verse 20. No matter how big your thoughts are of God, and no matter how big your prayers are of God, and I want both of them to be bigger, you can never out-big God. Notice verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. And may it start in your heart. 
And may it then be in the heart of the person beside you. And then may this great and glorious and far more abundant work be in this congregation as you search for your pastor, as you minister together. And may this blessing overflow from here into all of Rock Hill, into the upstate of South Carolina, into North Carolina, and throughout the world. Because God's able, and He deserves the glory. Let's pray.